You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. So this week I did some math, which admittedly is a bad and dangerous thing for me to do, but the numbers came out way higher than I expected. So 72 beats per minute, at least that's my average according to my Fitbit, times 60 minutes per hour, 24 hours a day, 366 days this year, because it's a leap year, for a grand total of 36,892,800 thump thumps in 2020. 37 million almost. That's a really big number. So I don't know if you're like me, but when you get to the end of a year, you sort of naturally slip into this posture of self-reflection. So I wanted to know how many of those 37 million were spent in peace? Of those 37 million heartbeats, how many passed by chasing things that really weren't that important at all? How many were spent under stress? How many were spent in fear? How many were spent in anxiety or anger or restlessness? Sure, maybe a third of those, 37 million, were spent with my head on the pillow, but was that sleep restful and peaceful? Another third were were probably spent from work, but did I work from a place of peace or did I try and work for a place of peace? Probably the most daunting question of all, at least for me, is if I'm afforded another 37 million thump thumps in 2021, how will I use them? Will I use them well? 37 million is an awfully big number, but it goes by really quickly. So this is our last week of Advent. Christmas is almost here. And if you're brand new to NCC or just checking us out online, we're finishing up this extended season of preparation. Leading up to Christmas, we've taken a look at this beautiful poetry in the book of Isaiah about how Isaiah prophesied about this king who would come and bring comfort and peace to God's people. And then we've looked in the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Luke to see what that peace actually looks like. From a worldwide census ordered by a Roman governor to a sky full of angels, God has been at work, working on his peace. This morning, we're going to meet two very obscure characters, and they're not a part of any nativity set, at least not one that I've ever seen. They weren't there at Jesus' birth, at least we don't think they were. Between the two of them, they take up a grand total of 13 verses in all of God's word. They're two elderly people, both in their 80s at least, and they've spent millions and millions and millions of heartbeats waiting for one thing, one day, one person, and then in Luke 2, They finally meet him. We've lived through a year this year in 2020 that's been anything but peaceful. And I mean that in a global sense, in a natural or a cultural sense, but then even in a personal sense. And I believe that God wants to use these two obscure New Testament characters to show us something remarkable about how Jesus actually brings peace to restless hearts. See, I believe that knowing God's peace completely means seeing Jesus's purpose clearly. Knowing God's peace completely means seeing Jesus's purpose clearly. So that's where we're headed this morning. So Luke chapter two, Jesus is eight days old. 
The shepherds have left the scene. And before we pick up the scene in Luke 2, verse 22, just a little bit of context for you. So Mary and Joseph have been in Bethlehem with Jesus for about a month or so. Um, Exactly where they stayed, we don't know for sure. It's very unlikely that they stayed at the stable, at the manger. The most likely scenario is they stayed in a borrowed room on somebody else's generosity. But since none of the gospel writers really say for sure, we want to resist the urge to speculate. So if you are brand new parents to a baby boy in Jesus's day, there were three things that the Mosaic law, this Jewish law code, demanded of you or required you to do. Three things that every new parent had to do for their son. So first off, new parents were required to bring their baby boy into God's covenant people through the act of circumcision. So kids, if you want to know more about that, ask your parents. Parents, have at it. You're on your own. But here's the idea. Back in Genesis, Abraham was the first member of God's household, God's people, to be circumcised. And then immediately after that, Almost immediately, his wife conceives. Now, again, I don't want to get too much into the details, but that should not have happened. And you can understand why. Parents, you can explain that one. So this law, practiced for centuries, is basically saying, remember, you are God's people. You come from Abraham. And just like I did great things through Abraham, I'm going to do great things through you. This is God trying to encourage his people with this covenant idea. And so that's the first thing that new parents were required to do. The second thing that all new parents were required to do was wait 40 days. So according to Jewish law, uh, a woman is unclean ceremonially for 40 days after she gives birth. And all that means is that she wasn't allowed to worship in the temple. Now that sounds really like primitive and maybe even a little chauvinistic to us, but here's the idea. God gave that time to give the mom's body a chance to heal from the effects of labor. And so all you need to know is there's about a month gap from the time the shepherds left the nativity scene to where we're gonna be this morning. That's 40 days where Mary can rest and recover and heal and be with Jesus. So you have the first thing they're supposed to do, this second thing, and then this third thing. After 40 days, the law required parents to do a third thing. And that's to make an offering at the temple in Jerusalem. Now here's the deal. This was a big deal. Heading to Jerusalem to make an offering, the, the, the temple in Jerusalem was this massive structure with external structures and colonnades and big courts. This was a big thing. And going there to make an offering, this was essentially a form of them saying, God, we recognize that this baby is from you. We recognize that he is a gift from you, on loan from you. And as he begins to make his way in the world, God, would you be present with him? So this is kind of like a prayer. And if you want to read more about that, you can read about um, Exodus chapter 13 is where that process is talked about in greater detail. So let's imagine this together. You've got those three requirements, circumcision, wait 40 days, and then head to the temple to make an offering. So Mary and Joseph, there they are in Bethlehem with Jesus. The trip to Bethlehem, or from Bethlehem to the temple in Jerusalem was a straight shot north for Mary and Joseph. It was about six miles. That would be like if we headed out of our sanctuary here at North Canton Chapel out to Cleveland Avenue and walked six miles north. That would be right about 619 right there in Uniontown. This trip gives us a couple of insights about Mary and Joseph as a couple that helped to give us a little bit of context this morning. First off, the fact that they made this trip shows their devotion to God. It shows their piety. 
It shows that they're serious about following God. And I don't care how adventurous you are or how excited you are to be a new parent. No parent wants to put the baby in the stroller, pack up a diaper bag, walk six miles, worship, only to turn around and head back home another six miles. The trip itself was a sacrifice. And so they did this out of obedience to God. This wasn't some form of like, let's go show the baby to the neighbors. This was more about God's design than their desire, but they wanted to honor God. So this trip shows their devotion. But the second thing, and this is probably the most remarkable, is it shows their poverty. The book of Leviticus talks about the kind of offering that parents are supposed to give Um, for this new baby that's come into their life. And I just want to read it to you. This is out of Leviticus chapter 12. It says, And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And then verse 8 says, if she can't afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for the burnt offering, one for the sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. So yes, you caught the mention of the two turtle doves from the Christmas song, but here's what that's all about. This is God making a concession so anybody, regardless of their economic status, can worship. Now, where you'll see in Luke 2 here, they brought two pigeons or two turtle doves. They didn't bring the normal offering that says that this was a concession that according to their economic status that Mary and Joseph had to take advantage of. Now, all that's interesting, but here's what I want us to see, especially as we get into the text this morning. Joseph and Mary, too poor to afford a lamb, walk into the temple that morning holding the lamb. Like that's the kind of stuff that just makes my head explode. When you read this, you go, what is going on here? Because already in this text, we get shades of what's to come. Knowing God's peace completely means seeing Jesus's purpose clearly. And Mary and Joseph got that this early on in the game. So with all of that as context, let's get to Luke 2. And we're going to start in verse 22. Here we go. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens or first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said of the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now this is Luke letting his readers know what's going on. His readers, like many of us, are Gentiles. That means they're not ethnically Jewish. And so he's providing a lot of context around why Mary and Joseph are doing what they do. So now that they're at the temple, Mary and Joseph meet this pretty intriguing, obscure character. And let's pick it up in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, before we get to what Luke says about Simeon, we actually should pay attention to what he doesn't say. If Simeon was some minor celebrity, Luke would have told us about that. If he came from some important family or he was some upper class, he would have told us about that. If he was of some note in the ancient world, same thing. Luke would have let us know, but we don't get anything about this guy. What do we get? Crickets. We actually get three phrases. The first one 
What's it say? It says he was righteous and devout. Instead of credentials, we get character. Well, there's probably a whole interesting trail we could follow here, but we'll save that for another time. Enough to say that God is less interested in your resume and your reputation than he is with your identity and your integrity. Simeon is righteous and devout, but he's also waiting for the consolation of Israel. What a heavy thought that is. That's this quick glance in this rearview mirror where we've been the last couple of weeks talking about Isaiah. Remember, Isaiah would talk about um, this idea of comforting God's people. He said, comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and say that her warfare is ended and her sin is pardoned. This is Simeon looking forward to that day. Simeon knew that those words were serious, and so he embodied those words. The last thing about Simeon is he says that the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, Simeon is actually the sixth person so far in Luke's gospel to be described as under the influence of the Holy Spirit. There's John, Mary, Jesus, Elizabeth, and Zechariah, and now Simeon. Now, here's why that's significant. Luke wants us to understand that God is doing something different through this baby. That this baby is not just some ordinary baby. God's up to something that he hasn't done. And after 400 years of stillness, God is stirring up the waters again. Something is coming. And so what's Simeon do when he meets Jesus for the first time? This consolation of Israel. Take a look in verse 27. And he came in the spirit into the temple, which means... He came ready to worship. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. And so now standing in the presence of God's comfort incarnate, Simeon's first impulse is not to speak, but to touch and to hold. It says he took Jesus in his arms The Greek word there for take is also translated as received. And it's also translated as waiting for. It's a really cool play on words that Luke is doing here because he's taking all these words of waiting and taking and receiving to show us that Simeon's actually doing what everybody else should be doing. That in receiving Jesus into his arms, he's actually receiving the consolation of Israel. He's been so intently looking for God's provision that he sees him in Messiah Jesus and he holds him. And then Simeon's so excited, he breaks out into song, which I love. Like, this may be just me, but I love extemporaneous poetry. And that's exactly what we get from Simeon when he's holding Jesus. Take a look in verse 29. He says, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. It's like he's saying, I can go home now. I'm good. I'm ready to meet you, Lord. And did you catch like the master slave servant imagery here? He's like, I've I've been your servant my whole life, God. I've done everything you've asked me to do, and now I'm ready to go home. Why? Verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Here's another play on words that Luke is doing. Jesus' name, this baby that Simeon's actually holding, Jesus' name actually means salvation. And so he's being a little funny here with his word choice, but this is Simeon saying, everything that my dimming eyes were meant to see, I've seen. Everything I'm meant to hold, now I'm holding. And then look how he describes him. Verse 31, He says that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. I love that. All of a sudden this gets global because Jesus' coming isn't for one ethnic group. Jesus' fame is going to spill out everywhere to the ends of the earth. This is in complete harmony with what Isaiah said about him way back in Isaiah 49, when Messiah will be a light to the nations and salvation to the end of the earth. 
And then it's also how we see Jesus in the end of all things at Revelation 5, 9, where he opens the scroll because he's worthy, because he's, or he's bought for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. What's the point? God's bride, God's salvation, this church, this people that God is preserving is a multicolored, multi-ethnic, multilingual bride. Racial superiority has no place with Jesus because it diminishes his majesty because it reduces his work. And that theme carries on for what Simeon says next and how he closes out this spontaneous prayer in verse 32. He says that this baby is going to be a light of revelation to the Gentiles and a glory for your people Israel. Now, interesting insight, nowhere in the ancient world, nowhere, is there any poetry that takes Jewish people and non-Jewish people and puts them in such close proximity. They're right in this poetic couplet here where he's talking about good things for Gentiles and good things for Jewish people. And by getting at that, Simeon understands something that most of God's people had forgotten about by this time. And it's the same thing that got Jesus crucified. And it's the same thing that God's people don't even see today, many of them, is that Israel is not the fulfillment of God's revelation, but the means through which God's revelation will finally come. He's like, here he is, this gurgling six-week-old baby boy, your salvation, your light, your glory. And so at this point, there's like this swelling building crescendo, and we're like, yes, let's go. Knowing God's peace completely means seeing Jesus' purpose clearly. I'm there, which is why verse 33 is the way it is. He says, his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Like, could you imagine that at the hospital when you deliver your firstborn? And this is what the first witness says about him. This is incredible. But then you can almost feel the tone shift. And you can see Simeon's gaze drop. He's not looking up anymore in worship. And the smile lines and wrinkles on his face that were illuminated by this afternoon shaft of sunlight, maybe in the temple. Now his eyes lower and his voice drops almost to a whisper. And he starts to get this look on his face like he sees this cloud that's gathering off in the distance. And here's what he says in verse 34. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now that's a very strange blessing kind of has this ominous foreboding tone to it, doesn't it? Like it's a little too personal. It's a little too scary, like a little too heavy for the birth announcements, right? Like you can't go, you know, here's the time of birth, height, weight, mom and baby are doing fine. Oh, hey, speaking of baby, he's going to cause massive division among God's people. Yeah, because God's going to use him for this deep purpose to reveal people's hearts. It doesn't really fit on the normal Christmas card, does it? <laughs> But Simeon got one idea, that knowing God's peace completely means seeing Jesus' purpose clearly. And that's how Simeon wraps it up. He's done. That's the last thing he says, and we never see him again. He's gone. And then Luke, 
records something else for us because there's another encounter here. There's another character that we need to meet. Luke puts an exclamation point on this idea of Jesus's purpose by introducing us to someone else. Look in verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel in the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up to that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. You hear the same tone in there? Simeon and Anna are kind of the same, the same thing. You have this righteous, devout man. And then you have this woman whose just whole life has been about worship toward God. And she's waiting for the redemption, just like Simeon waited for the consolation of Israel. Simeon and Anna are like two sides of the same coin. And Luke is trying to get at something. He's saying that this thing that God is doing, this gospel, this Jesus, this baby, this isn't about what economic class you fall into. This isn't about what people group you're a part of or what your paycheck says about you or what your gender is. He's like, no, 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 no. This is for everybody. (laughs) If you are hungry for peace, the God of the universe wants to give you peace and he's about to do it through this baby. But before we move on, I want to put a magnifying glass over something real quick. I want to take a closer look about how Simeon and Anna understood Jesus's purpose. Because they're right, Jesus brings peace. He is this consolation incarnate. But there's also like this heaviness to it. What does that mean? This sword will pierce through your own soul and this division and this revealing of hearts. What is this turn with Jesus? So 30 years later, um, Jesus is actually teaching his disciples and he says something that most of us really don't like to think about. I just want to read it to you. This is Jesus speaking 30 some years later. He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against father and daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Guys, that's Jesus talking. Like Prince of Peace, Jesus, baby Jesus, grows up and says that. What does that mean? Simeon's last words and Jesus's words here in Matthew 10, 30 years later, they're hitting on the same idea. This isn't Jesus meek and mild, no fluffy lambs and warm smiles. He says, I didn't come to bring peace. I came with a sword. What should we take from that? Here's the point. In our effort to achieve peace, we can never separate Jesus' personhood from his purpose. Or if you want to put it another way, you can never sever who Jesus is from what Jesus did. I remember the first time that this uh, really hit home for me. Um, I was 17 or thereabouts. And I don't remember if it was like a sermon I heard once or... Um, you know, it was a, a verse that I read or just finally my brain and my ears connected. Um, 
But I remember when it hit me that some of the people that I loved deeply, like friends that I knew and kind of ran with through high school, um, some of those people did not know Jesus. Um, They knew about him, but they didn't know him. They knew who he was, like they could recognize his picture, but they didn't have a relationship with him and they didn't know why he came and what he came to accomplish. Um, And maybe you can relate to this, but like I remember thinking back during that time and we were all sinners, right? We sinned together and um, we all kind of knew it. It just didn't make much of a difference in our life. Um, Like church and Jesus were like these separate places of our lives, like kind of compartmentalized. Um, They were like those rooms in your house that um, are cleaner than most other rooms, not because they're important, but because you just don't go in there very often. And up to that point, for me, Jesus was my savior, but he definitely wasn't Lord of my life. And I remember when it really hit me, I remember two things occurred to me at the same time. I remember thinking, okay, Jesus, I'm done doing this my way. Like I'm getting no satisfaction from life with Brandon on the throne. And so you've got to come on and you got to fix this thing. But then I also remember thinking almost at the exact same time that I don't know if some of my friends, I don't know where they stand with Jesus. I don't know, I don't know where they are. And that, that became a very strong burden for me at that point. And so I remember praying one of the prayers that you don't really understand when you pray it or else you probably wouldn't pray it uh, because you, you know of what it might lead to. And so I remember praying, I said, God, use me. I could take you to the exact place in the second floor of our house on State Street in Greentown where I prayed that prayer. I said, God, use me. If you can use my life to point other people to you, you can have it, which is a really dangerous prayer. Um, And uh, like 22 years later, that burden is still there for me because there's people I still deeply love that I don't know where they stand with Jesus. Um, Again, like... Maybe they know who he is. They could recognize his picture on a wall, but there's nothing personal there for them. That burden for me um, back then, 22 years ago, was birthed for one friend in particular. And this last year, I did his memorial service. He was 39 years old. And he died this last November and nobody saw it coming. And like, we're good friends since like second grade at Greentown Elementary School and like all the way through high school at Hoover. And I share that with you not to scare you or to like leverage some kind of personal religious trauma. But guys, here's the thing. Like we are all trying, scratching our way to find peace in this life. Like blind beggars feeling our way through the darkness, hoping our hands find something that's comforting. And the funny thing is that we don't realize is Jesus is actually reaching out for us to give us comfort on his terms, in his way, for his glory. Knowing God's peace completely means seeing Jesus' purpose clearly. He came for you and he came for me because despite everything that I've done to give him reason not to, he still loves us. So the question, of course, did Jesus come to bring peace? Of course he did. Absolutely he did. The only question is, how? And that's where things get sticky. Picking up on this idea, Paul, he hit the nail on the head in Colossians chapter one. He says this, talking about Jesus. He says, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. How? Making peace. How? By the blood of his cross. And that's the sticky part. What's the point? Jesus knows something about peace that we don't. 
that peace with others is only possible when we have peace with God. And peace with God is only possible when we're free from sin. And that freedom is only possible because of his work on the cross. We can't separate Jesus' personhood from his purpose. We can't, sever, we can't sever who he is from what he does. Knowing God's peace completely means seeing Jesus' purpose clearly. And I think Simeon and Anna understood that, which is why this is such a heavy thing to say. So where do we go from here? I mean, this is Christmas week. We're going to be opening presents in a little while. If we're going to set our heart to seeing Jesus' purpose clearly, like Simeon and Anna, what do we do? So as we head into Christmas, I want to give you three tips, just three things you can keep in mind in this next week to really set your heart on Jesus' purpose. And here they are. Stop, look, and listen. Stop, look, and listen. Stop. Stop looking in the wrong direction. (laughs) I'm going to make an assumption that Simeon and Anna were rare. Not a lot of people were doing what Simeon and Anna were doing in the first century. I'm going to make a second assumption. They still are. When I think about how they're described and I read about what they do, how they act, most days, that ain't me. It's really, truly not. Like, and I think you're probably the same way. Because when it comes to finding peace, our natural impulse is not to look up to God. Our natural impulse is to look out to other people. And here's what I mean. The deepest human problems, the real ones, are not horizontal in nature. They're vertical. Why can't you fix that relationship that bugs you? Right? Why can't you get along with that family member? Why do we constantly one-up each other with all these inflated opinions about insert 2020 issue here? We're all looking for peace, but it never gets there. And so we sigh, we wring our hands, we hang our heads, believing that, man, if everybody just saw this post, oh, they'd understand. <laughs> if everything just, if everybody just saw things my way, voted my way, thought my way, whatever, we'd be okay. Guys, that is not peace. Peace is never achieved by me getting my way over somebody else. That's just this never-ending game of influence and leverage and power. And Jesus doesn't play like that. So what's our problem? Our real problem, the one that we don't really want to acknowledge, is actually with God. We're trying to achieve peace by looking this way. And we're looking the wrong direction. Our real problem is not horizontal. Our real problem is vertical. And we're trying to solve a divine problem with a human solution. We need to stop looking this way to solve what's wrong with our world and start looking this way. So does that mean that you shouldn't debate on Facebook? I don't know. Maybe. It definitely means you should pray about it. Does that mean you should send your uncle a Christmas card whose crazy politics drive you up the wall? Yeah, you probably should because it doesn't matter. Remember, two of Jesus' closest friends were on opposite sides of the political spectrum. One was a zealot, Simon the Zealot, who said, let's overthrow the Roman government now. And then another guy, Matthew, worked for the Roman government. How's that happen? Two out of the 12, because they both got the same thing that Simeon and Anna get, is that if you want to experience God's peace completely, it means seeing Jesus' purpose clearly. And we need to stop looking the wrong direction. So stop and then look. Second tip, look. Look at Jesus. I know that sounds like really simple, but that is deceptively hard this year, isn't it? It's been so hard to see Jesus at work because there's so much other stuff that clouds the way. I'll give you three of them. Fear, doubt, and anger. Fear. We used to think about fear in this like flat, two-dimensional sense. Like, ah, it's like this thing. 
but now it's like up close and personal 3D in our lives, right? Just to speak candidly with you, like there's things I'm afraid of this year. Like I've seen myself become so insular, so like self-focused on just preservation that like, I wonder, God, have I even forgotten how to be a good friend? Have I forgotten how to have sensibility to the needs around me? That stuff kind of scares me a little bit. So that's fear. But then doubt. I think doubt is like when this faceless fear starts to get a face. Because doubt goes, well, I'm not just annoyed or controlled by my situation or my circumstances. There's a person behind this. And God, I doubt if you're really working. Fear says, this is terrible. Doubt says, God, have you given up on us? Doubt is fear with a face. So there's fear, doubt, and then there's anger. If, if doubt left unchecked, I think can get this way really quick because if fear is just a feeling and then doubt is when that feeling has a face, then anger clenches a fist, points a finger and says, your fault. And I know some of you are really wrestling that or wrestling with that with God. And here's the thing I want you to remember. Having fear, doubt, and anger, that's not the problem. Right? Those are emotions. And there's no such thing as a wrong emotion. Figure out what to do with those things. That's the kicker. So it's not wondering, God, are you going to per- pull through for me? It's what are you going to do with those feelings? And so what does God want you to do? I'll tell you. God wants you to worship him. He wants you to worship him. Worship is looking at Jesus with both eyes wide open and your soul honest. Worship when it's tough. Worship when you don't want to. Worship through it. Worship when you don't feel like it. But here's the insight. If you're going to worship your way through fear, doubt, and anger, you got to be honest about it. You can't be pious, hallmark channel Christianity. You can't just slap a sticker on doubt that says, well, don't worry. You know, God's working all things out to good. Of course he is. But that does not do a very good service to the dark depth of doubt in your life. You need to be very honest about it and bring those things to God. That's a courageous move. So worship through your fear, doubt, and anger. It's tough. Look to Jesus in your fear, doubt, and anger. It's what he wants with you. He doesn't want you to feel shameful. He says, come to me, right? All of you who are weary and heavy laden. And then what's Jesus' promise? He says, I will give you rest. So stop, look, and then listen. Stop, look, and listen. Listen to your longing, Listen to your longing. Proverbs 13, 12. It's one of my favorite Proverbs. says this. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. What that means is that you and I were created with this unquenchable thirst for satisfaction. And we need to listen to that longing. We need to pay attention to it. Even if that longing seems like it's a long way off and it's a slow time coming, when it gets here, it takes root in your life like a tree and it bears fruit season after season, no matter the circumstances. Simeon and Anna got that. Everyone listening to me this morning, whether North Canton Chapel is your home church or you just found this on your Facebook feed this morning or somebody shared it with you, everyone has the same thing in common. We are all longing for something. And so hear me, there could be nothing under your Christmas tree that will ever bring you lasting peace, ever. No influx of cash into your bank account, no bill from Congress, no headline about vaccines, no stimulus package. And as your pastor, do you want to know how I pray about those things for you? I pray about those things for you the same way I pray about them for myself, that God would slowly, tenderly, gently, wisely 
disenchant me with those things. Not to deaden my longings, but to deepen my longings. And I know what you say in your head, because I say the same thing. As I go, well, those things sure would be nice. They make life down here a lot more easy. And yeah, they do, maybe, but they'll fade. The tensions of today will relax and they'll be replaced with new ones tomorrow. This is how life works. And so as our souls tense and relax over a lifetime of stress, we should always be aware by our exhilaration on good days or by our exhaustion on bad days that nothing this world can offer you will ever bring you lasting peace. Paychecks and presents, headlines and updates, these are empty shadows of our longings. These are, they're the crumbs underneath the table of God's provision. Why settle? These things will never bring you lasting peace. They can't bring you lasting peace because they weren't designed to bring you lasting peace. But if you have the courage to listen to your longing and trace it back to its roots, you'll find that your deepest, truest, ultimate longing is actually for peace with God. And so I don't know if you've ever considered that, but it's absolutely true. The deepest longing you have is for peace with your creator. And that's what Jesus came to do. So listen to your longing and have the courage to follow it back to its source. You're thirsty for something that this world can't give you, and you know it. And that's why Simeon could close his eyes in peace. So 37 million, that is an awfully big number. And between you and me, I hope I get a little less next year. Maybe God just helps me calm down a little bit. and like, take it down a notch. That'd be nice. Just breathe a little deeper. Well, I would love to see you again Christmas Eve three o'clock and five o'clock in person or online. We're at the same times, three o'clock and five o'clock. You can watch online at nchapel.online slash Christmas. But before we wrap up today, I'd be missing an opportunity if I didn't come back and say this again. Jesus came to give you peace. And he came to give you peace through a horrible cross. And he went there knowingly and he went there willingly and he did it for you. And if you don't know him, what are you waiting for? Knowing God's peace completely means seeing Jesus' purpose clearly. Let me pray for us. Father, these are dark times. These are not peaceful times. These are not the times that we dreamt of. We don't like this anymore. So Father, would you work in us? Would you disenchant us with the things of this world? And as we see them pass away and we see how trivial they are, God, would you replace our desire for those things with the desire for your provision named Jesus? <laughs> Father, we love you. Bless us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.